And this is what exactly what was happening to Jonah. He was being sifted. He was running away. He, I mean, it was his fault. You know, whatever his motives were, probably pre, uh, his love for beloved Israel. Uh, you know what? He brought it upon himself. And in the process, which God foreordained, he was going, he was going through the sifting process. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that so far as the world is concerned, there are have been kings and presidents, and people in control. And they're actually put there uh, according to your will. We know that there's one true king, one true authority, and that's you. You are the creator of all things. All things belong to you, including ourselves. And so, Lord, men who sit in that place uh, of authority have a, have a responsibility, one day all will answer to you. And in the church, there are those, Lord, who are ambassadors for Christ, those who speak forth the word, who know the word, and in knowing the word, set forth the the church marching orders, the commands everything that we're responsible for. And there is no greater responsibility on earth than those who speak for God. So I pray, Lord, that we might take even this session seriously, both speaker and listener, and to know that the only thing that matters is the Word of God. Truth as spoken, as printed, as written in your Word, as it came through the inspiration of God, through you, to men who were godly men, chosen to be used by you. And I I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would magnify your word in our hearts, that we might hear, see, just listen to you and respond by the power of your grace and your Holy Spirit, that we might be obedient children those who are children. We ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, starting a new series, which I've called Not I, But Christ. And we're beginning in the story of Jonah. And we're going to have four messages, I believe, in all. Uh, Week one, uh, this week, will be the conflicted prophet, Jonah, the conflicted prophet, Week two, Jonah, the contrite prophet. Week three, Jonah, the captivating prophet. And week four, the contrary prophet. And as we see these things, I I hope that our hearts will be open to this series, not just on Jonah, but what it means to be, where to think through this phrase, not I, but Christ. You know, no matter how Jonah may have felt Uh, And even though he ran from God's will, 
in respect to his being sent to Nineveh, he could not help but be consistent with himself. Now that might seem odd or not in tune with running away from God, but in his heart, I believe, God changed Jonah into a different man. Uh, from one who was a sinner, born a sinner, alienated from God, hater of God and his law, but he was turned into, as all true children of God, experience a transformation in their heart and in their mind. And they become true prophets of God to, to live and proclaim the message. Now, imperfection doesn't change any of that. We're not talking about perfect people. We're talking about people who experienced a transformation in their being. What Jesus called born again, what Peter calls you know, regenerate, just a new life. Um, so right now what we want to do is we want to ask the question of us all, who are we? Who am I? Who are you? In our soul, in our mind, in our spirit. Are we genuine or pharisaical? And that's to say hypocritical. Are we atheists with a pretense of religion? Are we religious masquerading as Christians? Are we part of a cult following the, teacher of, the teaching of one man as opposed to the teachings of God? Does the Bible have complete sway over our decisions? Or do we look to the traditions of a church? Are we denominational? Or do we question everything taught and research the scriptures to see if those things are so? Who are you? What kind of a person are you? Are we prejudiced from a myriad of categories, including but not restricted to color, wallet size, weight, athletics, intelligence, authority, gender, and personal preferences, and the list could go on forever. I mean, prejudice is not restricted just to one category. Who are we? What are we? Are we lovers of God or lovers of self? Are we willing to serve God but only when it suits us or when it costs us and costs us everything? With these things in mind, let us consider the Jonah, the prophet Jonah. In 2 Kings 14, 25 to 27, and this is a time when uh, Jeroboam II, son of Joash, in the northern kingdom, was king. And it says, referring to him, quote, He restored the border of Israel, and from the entrance of Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arba, in accordance with the word of Jehovah, the Elohim of Israel. That is the I am that I am. And it's much used in the book of Jonah as is Elohim, which is the strong, faithful ones, promise-keeping God, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Apart from his book, there's no other mention of his name in the Old Testament, although he is mentioned uh, by the Lord in the New. And then in verse 40, 26, it says, For Jehovah 
saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. Yet Jehovah did not say that he would wipe out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Um, here we have this Jeroboam, who was one of 20 kings in the north. There were 20 until the captivity in the north and 20 in the south. The 20 kings that reigned in the north and in the south, the 20 in the south of the 20, there were five good men in the sight of the Lord. And of the 20 in the north, there were zero good men in the sight of the Lord. No matter how they may have appeared to people, there was only five out of 40 that were good. Says something about the corrupting value, I think, of the kingship. Evil kings were not nice, not easy to deal with, and certainly not uh, to prophesy against. And then this kind of speaks well, and I don't think we can really narrow down, maybe, uh, if Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam before or after the letter that was written and what happened in, this, in Nineveh. Um, but Jeroboam was not a, per, a person who would be feared, uh, and yet the, the word of the Lord came through Jonah, Jonah to him. Now, uh, speaking of a comment out of a commentary, A.M. Hodgkin, he said this, For generations Assyria had been making fierce raids on the lands bordering on the Mediterranean. And the punishments which she inflicted upon her captives were cruel beyond the wanted, well-known cruelties of those times, even to flaying their victims alive. Not a, not a pleasant thought. If you have kids or if anyone's beware of who's listening to this, I'm going to share a few details here. Violence was specified by the men of that city themselves in the hour of their repentance, as their peculiar sin, as I will quote. Furthermore, that's the end quote of Hodgkin's, the creation of what would later be perfected by Rome, which we now know as crucifixion, actually began in Nineveh, and it was impaling. Now, there's two ends through which a person could be impaled. We're not talking about sticking a spear in a person like lateral movement. We're talking about a person sliding down the spear that actually entered one of two directions. You can figure that out in your own mind. The worst one being head first, in which the victim was going sliding down slowly, obviously, uh, upon those who are already impaled and already dead. I mean, think about the viciousness, the violence of such a, a, a way of death. But they invented it. The king of Nineveh, Nineveh acknowledged their violence in Jonah 3.8. It says this, But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. 
This was a people who, when they went to war, uh, the soldiers got paid by the heads they brought back. Okay? This is not a, a friendly, loving environment. There's been cultures in history. You know, one comes to my mind is, you know, kind of non-committal to wars, which is Switzerland. You know, I, I've never been there, but, you know, it has that reputation. There's reputations of cultures. This was not one of them. This was quite the opposite. Further comment by Hodgkins is, quote, in the proclamation of God's judgment to Nineveh, Jonah saw the possibility of mercy for that city and the sparing of his country's foe, for he had a true knowledge of God's character as a merciful and gracious God of great kindness. From, this is from Jonah 4.2. He also may have thought that the one hope for the moral restoration of his own country was the object lesson of God's judgment on a large scale upon what then what was then the leading city of the world, end quote. So here we see through Hodgkin's comments possibly the motivation for Jonah fleeing. I, don't, I think in the story as we go through it we'll see he's not really a fearful man. He's not motivated by fear primarily. But he could have been motivated out of a love for his own country and, of course, against this very violent city and nation, Nineveh being the capital of Syria. Assyria. Jonah's motivation for running away was not fear, but his beloved Israel. Secondly, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, this is verses 1 and 2 from chapter 1, Arise, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. Now this is uh, Jonah's commission. We looked a little bit at his calling. Now we're going to look at his commission, specifically with, revent, with reference to the city of Nineveh. Another quote from Hodgkin. Uh, Jonah was God's prophet to Israel. His whole being was bound up in the salvation of his own people. And it was no doubt his intense patriotism which made him question the wisdom of God's command and made him ready to incur his displeasure and abandon his prophetic office rather than risk the welfare of his country. Now, we might look at that and say, and that's end quote, we might look at that and say, well, you know, I don't know if that's true. Uh, let me consider another person who was actually close to Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who heard God incarnate in the flesh for three years. And towards the end of that ministry, uh, we hear, uh, we can read these words from Matthew 16, uh, quote, that it was necessary, this is from Jesus, for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And yet, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, that, that, those words took him aside in Greek. 
he literally laid his hands on Jesus and pulled him aside. It's like grabbing a person by the collar and pulling him aside. I don't, I don't, maybe don't necessarily want the other people to hear this, but I need you to get this straight. This was an aggressive action, like taking hold of a man and then literally pulling him aside. Now, this is not just a man. This is Jesus. This is the man who calms the sea, that paralyzed the disciples with like, what manner of man are we dealing with? This is a man who's standing and transfigured before them on the holy mountain, and they see him in all his, in his glory with a lesser Moses and Elijah, these great prophets of God, and, and here's Jesus. And, and this is what Peter's doing. This is the familiarity, by the way, that Peter had with Jesus. But familiarity aside, he's pulling him aside and reprimanding him. And in the Greek, warning to prevent something from going wrong. He's saying, you know what, Jesus? I mean, I know you know everything. I know you're a prophet and speaking things we've never heard before. So I'm putting these words in there because that's where he was coming from. But actually, I need to correct you on this. This is not good. To which Jesus replied, get, me, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, what applied to Peter in the New Testament, uh, applied, I, I believe, applies to Jonah from his actions and from his behavior and probably from his motivations. Jonah ran from God to to keep something bad happening. And the bad that was going to happen was they could come in and can destroy uh, Israel. And and Jonah did not want to see that happen. He thought it was God's will. And yet he's hearing this word. You know, questioning God is not something unfamiliar in the New Testament, in the Bible. Jonah 1.3 says, But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, from Jehovah. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish. And by the way, that is as far from Nineveh as he could get in the world of that time. Paid the fare and boarded it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. He just didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. You know, what a man knows in his head can be hidden by his emotions. Feelings can run deep, and believe me, in this man, these feelings, and we'll see in the course of these four messages, they ran deep and can smother even the reality of God's holy word. It's, an, it's important that we feel and not become controlled by intellectualism. I want to make that statement. It's important, and that we not just be cold and calculating and mental However, it is equally important that we do not allow our feelings to run ripshod over what we learn in our hearts and in our heads, what we learn in the light. Because the night comes when we are called to do God's will, but what if in our hearts it runs completely contrary to what we think we know to be true, what we think we know to be true? The way Jonah understood God's character, as revealed in chapter 4 of his story, Even so, we would understand from the Old Testament, just from the name El Elyon, 
we, we read in English, you know, possessor of heaven and earth, it gives the, 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 the meaning of everywhere present at the same time. I mean, he owns everything. He's everywhere. There's nothing out of his sight or out of his authority or out of his possession. That's the name. He would have known a Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, behold, you're there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. If I say, quote, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. There's no hiding from God. I think it's safe to say Jonah was probably overwhelmed with his emotional, his emotions, his feelings, his love for Israel, that nation of God, and all the word that God had chosen these people and given them a land. Uh, but you know what? People can be overruled by good or by bad, by good, by their what they know to be true. Now let's consider Abraham. I mean, he's supposed to go up on a mountain and I'll show you what to do there and he's going to take the life of his son. I mean, what, well, how hard would it be to say, wait, wait a minute, hold it. Let's stop here for a minute. Um, Thou shalt not murder, okay? You want me to murder my son. I mean, this had to go through his mind. Uh, I wasn't there. I say those words, but just any thinking, moral man who had been brought to the place that Abraham was, lifted up a man of faith, brought to the test of his life, by the way, right here, to, to his all the blessings had been promised through this son, through Isaac. And now he's being told to take his life. Now, in his case, faith overruled, and he went and took out the knife and was ready to take him, believing in Hebrews chapter 12 that God was able to raise him from the dead. And so his faith was in what? In a Messiah that would raise his son from the dead. And it brings us to the cross, where everything comes to pass through faith in God who delivered up his son was a sacrifice for our sins and was raised from the dead a newness of life, a newness of life shared by every single child of God who was made new. And therefore we have Abraham with his godly faith exercised. And so just as Jonah is running away, overtaken by his emotions and his thoughts, from his, his calling and here in this further commission to go to Nineveh, he's overtaken by these things, and there becomes a great conflict. Thus, we, we want to look thirdly at Jonah's conflict. And believe me, this man was conflicted. Running away uh, or not, Jonah could not help but to be who he was. Hear that statement. He could not help to be who he was. He was a man who knew God. 
You know, John 17, 3, I love this verse. I love it. It's in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer on his way to Gethsemane. Just got done with the upper room discourse in John 14 and 15, 16, and now 17. Actually, it's beginning in 13. I'm going to quote 17, 3. And this, eternal, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? Knowing God. Jonah could not know Jesus, as we do, on this side, his side of the cross. But make no mistake, he was one who knew the one true God. And he heralded his will and his message. Jonah 1, 5, and 6 says this. However, Jehovah hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried out to his God, his Elam, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below in the stern of the ship, had laid down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God, your Elam, will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. These were pagans, multi-God worshippers, they believed in multiple gods. Which god is your god? We want, to, we want you to help us here. First, we see God seen in the circumstances. The wind and the breaking of the ship. The sailors fear and turn to empty religion. They're turned from empty religion to human means, hurling the cargo overboard. So first, the circumstances, then the human effort to fix things, and including their empty religion. God's provision was the prophet himself, however. He causes the problem and then hides himself asleep below in the stern of the ship. There was cargo. I don't know how big this boats were. I know what we believe boat sizes were. I, I think it was uh, maybe a little bit bigger than most commentators say, but the captain... Here approaches Jonah, and this is what he says, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now, they, I already mentioned that they turned from religion immediately to throwing things overboard. And that's the way that kind of religion is. You know, call on your God. What else can we do? Get out and do what you got to do. And there's no coincidence when they cast lots in verse 7. Come, let us cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. They saw things revolving around themselves. So when a storm came... There had to be a person involved. Sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. But here, it's getting to the point of death, and they got to place the blame somewhere, so they cast lots, and the lot fell, not coincidentally, on Jonah. Again, we're looking at the providence of God. Works, God works through providence, and God is working through the casting of the lot. 
Jonah always seems to carry a powerful message. This is true. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this catastrophe struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Jehovah Elohim of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, they immediately see in Jonah the answers for which they seek. You know, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a prophet. <laughs> okay. Where do you come from? Perhaps Gath, Heifer. You know, that's where he was born. That's the place of his, the origin of his birth. By the way, Gath means wine press, and Heifer means of the pit. You know, if ever a man was in being pressed so that the good could come out of him, it's a man who was stuck in a pit of all pits in, a, in the belly of a fish. Now, people mock this like it can't be done. Please, the God who creates everything from nothing can put a man in the belly of a fish. The man who can part the Red Sea. The man who can do miracles that destroyed Egypt. He, this God can do anything. Only people with no faith in God and in his word. And that includes all the things that seem impossible. You know, God, Jesus said, what's impossible for men is possible with God. And the context was an, uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Really? A camel passing through the eye of a needle? If God wants it to, zingo, it's done. And it comes out the other side. I have no problem with that. So here we have in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And this is what, exactly what was happening to Jonah. He was being sifted. He was running away. He, I mean, it was his fault. You know, whatever his motives were, probably pre uh, his love for beloved Israel, uh, you know what, he brought it upon himself. And in the process, which God foreordained, he was going, he was going through the sifting process. What is your country? So they can know which God. The answer came from the prophet's mouth, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Jehovah, the I am that I am the eternal God, the one who has always been, the one who has created everything. He says the Elohim, the strong faithful one of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, if it's heaven, if it's the dry land or it's in the water, you know what? This God created it. So no matter where your gods are from or who you think they are, he overrules all of them. This is the message from Jonah right from his own lips. He couldn't help to be who he was. That's what I'm talking about. He was a Hebrew. You know, the people who destroyed Egypt. I mean, you could just feel the fear in these men as they're hearing this, these men on the ship, and I haven't gotten even to Nineveh yet. The fear, you know, just ripping through them from tales told from long ago when Israel, Egypt was stripped naked, destroyed, their army gone, all of it. In a, in, a, in a climactic miracle of the Red Sea. 
And don't think that there weren't people traveling around and not only heard the stories, but saw what took place. And it was, it was history to these people. We might look at Jonah as inconsistent because he ran from God's will. You know, but he could not change God's message. And just by telling who he was, he told a message. Unlike Balaam, who, and this is from Numbers, unlike Balaam who pushed on to do his evil deed, Jonah tried to run away. Jonah, Balaam wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted a house. He wanted position. He wanted wealth. He was a, a person who just would do anything for a buck. This is not true of Jonah. God's sovereignty prevented the prophet from running away. God's grace and mercy provoked the prophet's sinfulness. Not that God provoked him to evil. God cannot provoke evil. He's provoked by never provoked by evil. But by doing good, by his willingness to forgive anyone, which the prophet Jonah just, he got it. He, 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 was, he was a sinner. And he was brought to be a prophet of the Most High God. And if he could be saved just like every person who's ever saved, well, he would be willing to save the Ninevites. He got it. And in his sinfulness, in his blindsidedness, in his emotions, he ran from this God who is a good God. Who is a God of mercy and of grace. However, the true prophet could not cease to be who God made him to be. Before the storm even started, when he first got in the boat, he opened his big mouth. Verse 10. Then the men became extremely afraid, and they said to him, How could you do this? Why did they say that? It says right in the verse. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Jehovah, because he had told them. When he got on the ship, where are you going? I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They let him on the boat. They must have been kicking themselves for doing that. But he couldn't help himself. He just had to tell what was true. I've been in that position. I can remember sitting in a, in a car talking to someone from work. And as I'm sharing this awful place that I was in at the time, that I had questioned God the same way, and things weren't working out, and I had stumbling blocks from the church thrown in my path, and I was just... I've just fallen on my face. And I'm letting this all out. And this is an unsaved person, mind you. And they're telling me, you know, I hear everything you have to do, but what? where's God in all of this? And in that place, hearing those words, I mean, I felt like Balaam, who was sitting on the donkey, and the donkey turns around and saying, what are you hitting me for? And he got, he got put in his place by a donkey. I mean, I know how that feels. I really do. Not to call. Well, in verse 11 it says, So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. I mean, even while they're having these conversations, they're doing all this. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. And in verse 12 he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. This is a man who's really in his right mind. 
Don't think this is some fool running away. This is a man who knows the will of God. He knows, he's not like, why did God let this happen to me? Why am I in this storm? I mean, give me a break. And I, I hear that from people sometimes when sometimes it's pretty obvious, maybe not to them, and you can't always know, and there's things happen to people all the time that are terrible, and it has nothing to do with sin. And uh, sometimes it's for the glory of God, as Jesus said. Um, but sometimes it is. And this man knew this storm was because of him and his unfaithfulness. And he should not have been running to Tarshish. They believed him, but they didn't trust him. They believed him, but they didn't trust him. Because in verse 13 it says, However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. I don't know, maybe the man doesn't know what he, maybe he's whacked out. Okay, we know all of this about him, and, and I don't know, maybe God's still going to protect him. Maybe if we throw him overboard, we'll all die. Who knows what was going through their minds. But they didn't immediately answer him. And then after the storm continues to increase, in verse 14, they cried out to Jehovah. They're not crying out to Elam. They're not crying out to false gods. They're not calling out to the gods that they knew from their childhood. They're pagan gods. They cry out to Jehovah and said, we earnestly pray. This is like the final word of a man before he dies when he says, I swear. This is what and whatever he says. You can pretty much rely on a dying man to tell you the truth. I've been on dead bedside more than once only to hear people in, in sincerity say things that had to be true and so we earnestly pray oh Jehovah do not they use that word more than three times uh, speaking of them and then twice by themselves do not let us perish on account of this man's life why and do not put innocent blood on us so far as Jonah's sin was concerned, they were innocent. So far as being born to the race of Adam, they were sinners and guilty. And so if they died, make no mistake, they weren't, God wasn't doing anything wrong. But so far as Jonah was concerned, put not innocent blood on us, for you, Jehovah, have done as you pleased. They recognized the lordship of this Jehovah of Hebrews in this situation. They got the message from the prophet, the man from Gath-Hefer, and they got his God. They did not want to kill God's anointed. They cried out to Jehovah of, Je of Jonah. They said that they cried in earnest. They thought to themselves that they were innocent. However, they acknowledged that Jehovah was the one in charge and his pleasure was in view. That brings us to verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped. <laughs> I'm sorry. The sea stopped its raging. This is like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, and the water gets calm. It doesn't say it got calm, but it says the sea stopped its raging. 
And that's another way of saying it got calm. Then the man, men became extremely afraid of Jehovah. And they offered a sacrifice. They offered a sacrifice and, uh, to the Lord and made vows. We are not told what the vows were nor the sacrifice. But we know that they sacrificed and they made vows. You know, if any man would confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that means you do what he wants you to do. And confess with your mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's vows. There's, there's confessing Jesus Christ. Uh, these vows, whatever they were, you know, I'll do this or I'll do that, and if they're made in the flesh, you know, they fall to the ground like New Year's resolutions. But in the spirit, a person who's touched by the spirit of Almighty God and repents of sin and sees their wickednesses, I believe these men did. They, they acknowledged Jehovah. They made sacrifices. You know, our life becomes his. Our life becomes a living sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 12. I mean, that's our reasonable service. This is a kind of a picture, you know, really a precursor of what's coming in the city of Nineveh. These uh, sailors headed in the opposite direction from the will of God for Jonah, you know, are broken. They're afraid. When the sea stops, you know, t'was grace that taught my heart to fear. The ocean gets calm. And in the calmness, they become not like happy, they're not rejoicing, then let's party. That's not what it says here. It says they became extremely afraid of Jehovah. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Not for devastating, not for destructive purposes here, but for the fact of grace. The sea swallowed up Jonah, a prophet of God, a Hebrew. He's gone, and the storm goes away. Where's that leave them? None of them had Jehovah as a god. They had false gods. And now they're sitting in a calm sea. And they're broken of pride. And they offer a sacrifice. And they make vows, plural. They're all in. And when we get to Nineveh, we're just going to see more of that. So they became afraid. And that was a good thing. And then the chapter ends, concludes with verse 17. And Jehovah designated a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. You know, this is a picture where Jesus says, you know, is no sign is going to be given to this generation. They, they sought it. They wanted a sign. Prove to us that you're Jesus. Like he hadn't been proving that for three years by healing people. By raising people from the dead. I mean, give me a break. You know, they want to, so what sign they look, if they're not looking for a sign, they're looking to destroy Jesus it was in their hearts, and we're told repeatedly in the Gospels, 
Lazarus is raised from the dead, and that's it. We're going to kill this guy. Yeah, we're, he's done. We're going to finish him. And they made sure that he was nailed to a Roman cross. Of course, if it wasn't the will of God, they couldn't have done anything. But that was their desire. That was what they wanted to happen, and the sign didn't mean a thing. But he says, no other sign will be given you except the prophet Jonah. What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, he was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And then the fish vomits him up on land. I can't, no, I don't know. It doesn't, it's in, not in the, in the chapter. It's not in the Jonah, in the writing of Jonah. But, you know, there had to be witnesses to the story. I don't know if being in the belly of the fish discolored Jonah, some think bodily fluids certainly would do. I don't know if there were miracles that took place that to, kept, to keep him alive. There are things we, we can't know. But whether he was discolored or not, the message would come through like it did on the, on the ship, and it would bring conversions. First of all, because God was behind it. No one hears a message unless God is in it. Je Jesus said, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. That there's no way of twisting those words to mean anything but what they are. Now, people do it. doesn't keep, stop people from doing it. But you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. What, what's that mean? Except that apart from God choosing us, there's no choosing him. Our sense of choice has been distorted through our fall into sin. Our, emotion, our emotions have been altered. Our intellect has been changed. As we sin in life, we're given over to, to, to all kinds of vice and lusts and even to the brain of a moron in Romans chapter 1. We're given the brain of a moron. You know, a moron just doesn't have the capability of reasoning and without reason, we make really bad choices. And so for people to say that the will is ultimately free and that man must freely choose, really, is that what the Ninevites did? This extremely violent culture, they made a reasonable choice. Was it reasonable to fillet men? Was it reasonable to impale men for greed and to bring their heads back to get paid? Was that reasonable? I mean, how reasoning are people, are people on earth today? How reasonable are we, apart from the living God, to save our soul and make us something that we would not be by our own reasoning power, by bringing our emotions into control so that we can see the things that are not as though they were, that's something that's a gift of faith. Faith is a gift. The freedom to choose is a gift. And how does God do it? By changing our heart. Just spend some time in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, and you'll see the covenant that God made with man, and that covenant that he makes is he would give us a new heart. Why didn't Israel keep the law? Because they didn't have a new heart. And they were incapable of keeping the law. And that's why the law was given, to show us that we can't keep it. Romans chapter 6 and 7. And so it is, we conclude this story with the salvation of these sailors, the glorification of God, who is a God 
who saves sinners by his grace and his mercy, his kindness and his love, his intercession. Christ was yet to go to the cross. These men's sins would be covered for a time until, I don't know, uh, I think it's 760 years later, uh, where Jesus would be born and he would be he would live a holy life and he would die a death that no other man could die, a sacrificial death. And he would be raised from the dead in that resurrection. Anyone who believed in him would be given newness of life. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophet Jonah. We thank you for his writing of this tale. We thank you for these words of God that he prophesied. This was the prophecy of his life. And he was involved in it, as we all are. The prophet is never separate from the, the calling. We are to live lives, in this case, of transparency, lives life of honesty, calling on God and telling people that we had to call on God, that apart from God I can do nothing, that if God had not saved me I would be lost forever. He didn't just die on a cross, but he chose me. And in that choosing, he gave me a new heart. Where does that leave people who are lost? No one knows who's chosen. I didn't know it. All I knew was to cry out one night and say, God, help me. After hearing a man preach the word with power and having heard of my sinfulness, I gave my life to you. That's what we do. We don't know the mind of God, Deuteronomy 28, 28. You know, the, the things, the hidden things, are they're just that, they're hidden. But the things revealed belong to us. The hidden things belong to the Lord. Lord, you've revealed salvation's plan. You've revealed your grace, your sovereignty, your mercy, and your goodness. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, we receive these things from your word in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.